ADP has your back with Accountant Connect. Their award-winning multi-client payroll management and analytics platform is a remarkably effective tool for adding value to every client engagement. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, ADP Accountant Connect, later in the episode. One of the questions I had immediately was, where did all the money go? What happened to the 100 million? Because there's no way with 100 employees that they burned through 100 million dollars in a year. Not possible. That's a lot of money. If they got a thousand clients, that's a hundred thousand per client. And I, so I texted uh, somebody who's a leader at a top 100 accounting firm, and I said, "Hey, can I buy your firm for a hundred million dollars?" He's like, "I got a text back, sure." <laughs> like, so, so you could, if you if you wanted clients, you could just bought a big old accounting right. firm. They could have just bought a firm. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Cinder. If you've ever tried to get your clients Stripe, Square, or PayPal transactions into QuickBooks or Zero, you've probably pulled your hair out a few times trying to get income and fees recorded correctly so that the deposit amounts match the bank statement so you can reconcile. Did you know that you could be using Cinder to automatically do this for you? Cinder can auto-categorize these transactions, adding additional data like classes and locations, then accurately post them into the accounting system. Cinder also enables your clients to receive online credit card payments using the payment service of their choice, while trusting it won't create any additional tracking overhead. If you need support, Cinder offers free help using your favorite means of communication, be it chat, email, or phone. To try out Cinder for free, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash Cinder. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash S-Y-N-D-E-R. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Smancha. The line between a successful business and a bankrupt one is often how much cash they have in the bank and how long they are able to remain cash flow positive during challenging times. Keeping an eye on your client's cash flow is now more important than ever. Smancha integrates with QuickBooks Online and Xero to help put an end to cash flow problems. By using daily, weekly, and monthly forecasts, cash flow calendars, and powerful customized what-if scenarios, you can visualize your clients' finances in clear and intuitive ways so you can take action and reshape their cash flow by getting them funding with one simple application. Smancha identifies when extra cash is needed and can match your clients with multiple financing options via more than 50 screened lenders. And you can advise on the best offer suited to your clients' needs. Just for the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast, Smancha is offering its fully functional, unlimited companies license for free until August 31st, 2020. Head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash Smancha. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash S-M-A-N-S-H-A. Welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. Oh my god! Like I had to pour a big old IPA for this episode. Like it's been a long week. <laughs> I'm drinking a glass of wine right now. It is a little after 5 p.m. on Friday, June 26th, and it has been quite a week. Scale Factor is probably the biggest news in the cloud accounting world in I don't know since QuickBooks Live was announced, or since Intuit laid off people on Monday. Yeah. <laughs> like I thought that was going to be the biggest story of the week. <laughs> I know, right? So Scale Factor laid off. 100 of their employees or plans to lay off all of their employees eventually because they are shutting down completely. We'll talk about that scale factor. One of those uh, software slash accounting firms, you like to call them accounting firms with developers, I think is the term you use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I've got follow-up on Luckin Coffee and Wirecard and uh, Ernst & Young. Oh, that's right. Which, the Wirecard guy got arrested or something. Did. I, I yes, totally forgot Ron, about that. The yes. former chief executive of Wirecard who liked to dress up like Steve Jobs. He liked to play dress up like Steve Jobs was arrested in Germany in uh, Munich. Ernst & Young was the auditor in both those cases. So not looking good for Ernst & Young this year. PPP, some new guidance on early forgiveness, some more PPP transparency news about how the SBA exempted lawmakers from ethics rules, apparently. The Treasury sent more than a million coronavirus stimulus payments to dead people. <laughs> that That's uh, from a new government watchdog report. You mentioned that Intuit laid off 700 people, more than 700 people. Uh, so yeah, lots happened this week. MasterCard owns a company that creates bank feeds. So now MasterCard and Visa essentially own all bank feeds. Oh, that's uh, worrisome. <laughs> all the bank feed APIs. <laughs> so yeah, we've had a very crazy week. It, it, uh, there's been a lot. So uh, we could jump in. But before we jump in, I want to tell you a little story I have mm-hmm. had. So you know, we've talked about in the past plenty of times, tech companies that are human powered, Apple, Siri, we've talked about even apps in our own industry, right? Where yeah. there's humor pa- humans powering the tech. Yeah, it's the mechanical Turk. It is Mechanical Turk. a machine that looks like it is automatic, but really there's a small, tiny person inside uh, making the gears move. Which is interesting because I was really thinking about this a lot. Like you go back in time to like desktop computers and desktop software, your computer did what you did. You install it. Your computer wasn't phoning home somewhere. Right. And there was some human doing something. Like coders had to code the code to make it actually do things. And I'm starting to feel like, Everything's fake. So <laughs> you're sounding like an old man, Larry. Old man Larry I know. sitting out in his I, lawn yelling at the kids. You know, back in my day with the desktop computers. I know, I cannot believe I'm doing this. But so <laughs> everybody's heard of Grubhub or Uber Eats, right? There's so many Seamless, of those services, right? That are uh Postmates, yes. Postmates. So I I use Seamless. That's what I'm using. Um last night or two nights ago, I decided, hey, we're at the dog park, time my dog, let's get some Korean food. Great. So I plot Seamless, we put in the order, we send the order. About three, five minutes later, I get to the car. I'm like, hey, we're driving by there. Why don't we just pick it up? Right? So I call the restaurant and I say, hey, can I pick up my food? I just ordered on Seamless. She's like, yes, what's your phone number? I give her my phone number. She's like, yeah, you can come pick it up. So drive over there. She said, it'll be ready in about 25 minutes because I didn't want to like wait 80 minutes for a delivery. Okay. Right? I drive over there, I pick it up. And she's super, super helpful, goes through my whole order, boxes it up, et cetera, et cetera, that hands me a ticket, right? So just to take a step back, so any of you, if you've never used Grubhub or Uber Eats or any of these types of services, you pay for your food in the app when you order the food. Right. Right. So she's like, Seamless didn't pay me. You got to pay me. Hmm? I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. Right. You are very, very confused. Your card was already charged. So- I'm not going to argue with her. I'm like, all right, I'll figure out what's seamless later. So I just pay the food. So I pay for the food. The very next person who's standing in front of me back of the line is apparently the delivery driver who's going to come pick up my food and pay for my food. Right. So I paid for a meal twice and tipped a guy because I felt bad that he went there when the order should have been canceled. Right. Yeah. You messed with the system. The The, the app is just a um, intermediary. Right between a restaurant that has its traditional process where you pay in the restaurant and automating it, it, it it's it's 
It's not actually... But it's not automated. This is the amazing part that I learned. Now, apparently some restaurants can get a tablet in the restaurant, a seamless tablet or a Grubhub tablet, and the orders come through on there and it's a little bit more integrated with their point of sale. But a lot of restaurants, like smaller independent ones, like this Korean restaurant I went to, don't. So here's how this works, Blake. I put an order on the phone. Somebody in India calls the restaurant and says, this is David, gives him my phone number and puts in my order. And then they tell a driver to go pick up my food, say they're David, they pull out a credit card that's like a Grubhub like instant spun up credit card like we've talked about you know, these services yep. with these instant Visa, instant MasterCards, pays for the food pretending they're me and then they drive it – they would drive it to my house. Like the whole thing is fake. Right. There's no technology moving data around. This is complete ridiculous. It's so insane. It seems automatic to you. So, the experience for the end user is automated, but the entire process is manual. Yes, you're right. It's And a lot of things work that way in our profession when it comes to all of these apps that talk about using AI, but really it's people doing the work and we're just calling them bots. It's the same thing. I, it's, it, I was just so shocked. I felt so bad. I, 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 tipped, I tipped her first and then I tipped the driver like it was the most expensive meal I'd bought in the whole COVID time but I learned though so much that's what I came on I told the wife I was like oh don't worry about how much I spent I learned so much and here's the thing that really kind of is bad about this is that these services to create convenience for us so that we don't have to call the restaurant they charge huge margins 30 percent fees you know Uber Eats I think is the worst it can be like up to 40 percent that the restaurant pays just because of our resistance to picking up the phone and calling people. Yeah. So, the thing is, it ties though because I mean, we've talked about this before that, that these tech companies are really just a service company, but they're, they're, they're getting multiples on their valuations, like a software play that has 90% margins, but they don't have 90% margins because they have these people involved. And it kind of ties back to scale factor. That brings here, us right ultimately. to scale factor. So, let's talk about it. Let's talk about the fintech startup that raised $100 million in the space of 12 months from investors, big name investors such as Bessemer Venture Partners and Co2 Management. They were launched in 2014. They graduated from Techstars Austin in 2017. And if you go to their website and you look at the services they offer, which we'll go there right now and we'll look. Scale Factor does a few basic things. They'll do cash or accrual accounting. They will do your bill pay powered by bill.com. They'll do payroll that's powered by Gusto for an additional add-on fee for both the bill pay and the payroll. Their cash accounting service, they use QBO or Zero. You get 24-7 on-demand view of your books, automated daily bookkeeping, transactions classified daily, bank, credit card, loan, and payroll reconciliations, annual tax depreciation, expert-checked monthly P&L, and expert-checked monthly balance sheet pretty standard bookkeeping services. And that is $399 per month if paid annually. And I think there's like some add-ons. We've talked, I think we've talked about them before and we've kind of done some math. Like, okay, maybe their average customer is between $700 to $1,000 a month, right? Depending on yeah. what these, what extra services they've sold them. And I think in one of these articles, they say that it goes from $6,000 a year to $30,000 a year, depending on the size of the business, which... Makes sense, right? $6,000 a year is 500 bucks a month. So that's kind of these starter packages we're seeing on their pricing page. And then the bigger you are, the more they're going to charge you, right? They're not going to charge you $500 a month if you're a $10 million a year business. They also have accrual accounting, but it's pretty much similar other than that. 
Uh, they'll record your prepaid expenses, do your APAR, do APAR reporting. It's not that complicated. The thing about Scale Factor, though, is that they are not marketed, at least to the VC world, as a bookkeeping company or an accounting firm. Or like I like to say, an accounting firm with engineers. Yeah. So back in August, when they raised their Series C, which was $60 million, Forbes described Scale Factor as this, quote, Scale Factor makes online financial software that enables small and medium-sized businesses to automate back-office tasks, including bookkeeping and payroll, end quote. But Scale Factor, the only software that they make that I am aware of is the dashboard, which is, it looks beautiful. It aggregates all of your accounting and bill pay and payroll information from QuickBooks, Bill.com, and Gusto. But Let's they're still- Pause there. Pause yeah. there. It's, they basically built the dashboard. Two weeks ago, we just talked about Samal, who basically built the dashboard. Yeah. <laughs> like, they went under. Exactly. Right? Like, so, 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 Skill Factor is a company that built a dashboard, but behind that dashboard, they're just a bookkeeping accounting firm, like the kind that I built. We did exactly the same thing. Uh, we didn't raise $60 million. We raised more like $80,000 and grew organically the rest of the way. So, Scale Factor raised money, raised $100 million like a tech company. And clearly, there's been a problem right now that they're shutting down. They announced this week that they are laying off half of their 100 employees immediately and that the other half will be gone by the end of August. They're winding things down. And that follows the layoffs a couple of months back. Yeah, well, it, we had three months ago. So that's right. that was the that was the sign that there were problems before this whole COVID thing happened, right? So we'll, yeah. I want to talk about that, but let's let's just talk about what happened this week. So in a blog post, the founder Kurt Rathman announced that they are letting go of half of their employees immediately. They're going to wind down operations, transition clients away to some other, as yet unspecified, provider. 10 people are going to remain to wind down the company. The employees are getting 12 weeks of severance and healthcare until the end of 2020. But what's crazy about this is how quickly it happened. Just last week, Scale Factor said it was hiring on LinkedIn. They had new people joining. So what is the rationale for this? Why did this happen? And in the Forbes article and in an article in the Austin Business Journal, Kurt Rathman, the CEO, says that they lost half their revenue as a result of COVID-19. Half of their clients went away, and they had about $7 million in ARR. And I think, David, you have said they had about 1,000 clients. I don't know if they ever hit 1,000. So they talked about having 750 uh, when they did that for the reorg a couple months back. They said that 750, but they're on pace to get 1,000. But my understanding is they, they, they also, when they restructured, they actually let some clients go. So I, I, if they hit 1,000, I'd be truly amazed right. because my understanding of this space and all the competitors, et cetera, they, they raised the most and got the least amount of customers. Yeah. So they had raised a hundred million dollars with fewer than a thousand customers. And we've talked about this before, back when they raised the money, how we were both skeptical about that. Uh, they had a $360 million valuation after that series C in August, $360 million with only 7 million in annual recurring revenue. So they lost half their clients, according to, to Kurt. And here's the quote from Forbes. Business owners went into fight or flight mode. You don't necessarily need all the planning tools, high-end gadgets. You just get back to the simple pen and paper. I don't really understand this because when I look at what Scale Factor offers, they don't offer planning. 
they don't offer high-end gadgets. This is pretty basic stuff, right? The dashboard, the bookkeeping, the payroll, the bill pay. Clearly, some of their clients decided that they didn't need the service. But it's not like bookkeeping is unprofitable. In fact, as we have discussed many times on the show, it's more profitable than it's ever been, which is why more and more accounting firms and CPA firms are getting into the whole client accounting services game, right? It's got- Yeah. Before we go down all these other paths, yeah. right? Like, I want to just like talk about this blaming COVID. Yeah. Well, yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and somebody argued with me on Twitter about this, some Austin startup guy from some other startup. And he's like, well, if all your clients are in the restaurant or service industry, you're going to lose them. And, and I think that's a bunch of bull crap because I know- Accountants and bookkeepers that are in this industry, in our space, that are only taking on restaurant clients, they don't have a hundred million bucks and they didn't have to fold. Right. And then I think about like how busy accountants and bookkeepers are. They're the busiest they've been in 30 years. They didn't offer other services. Like these, it doesn't seem like these guys offered like, hey, we'll help you get your PPP loans. Well, they didn't offer any of their services. No. Like there's no, like when it's just hard to buy into. I think COVID's an easy out. It's an easy way to get out. Yeah, I agree with you. And what happened in February, which you mentioned already, is a clue. Back in February, Scale Factor announced a pivot. They said that they were creating Scale Factor 2.020, so a play on 2020. And they were going to create a marketplace, an on demand financial solutions marketplace. And they were going to do an internal restructuring for the Scale Factor team where a portion of Scale Factor's finance professionals would be retained to foster the new marketplace from within, while Scale Factor would make assistance available to those who wish to start independent businesses as certified pros within its marketplace ecosystem. So basically taking their internal bookkeepers accountants and letting them go and then becoming a marketplace provider. So we're going to hook up businesses with these accountants who are no longer on our payroll and just facilitate that whole thing, which that's a big pivot from what they were doing, which was doing all the work in-house. Yeah. I mean, they were trying to switch over to more like a QB QuickBooks Live model kind of, or an Uber model where they just play middleman. Exactly. So that must have been driven by the Series C. Right? Now, I'm, I'm just hypothesizing here, right? We don't know exactly what happened, but let's, let's, let's try to figure this out. So they get the $60 million Series C last summer, and they, they – raise that money based on some crazy growth metrics that they say they can hit. And, you know, they've got their CAC and their LTV and they're going to grow double every year and all that stuff. And then it doesn't happen because everybody who has run an online bookkeeping company or a cast practice knows that you cannot grow that fast. Nobody grows that quickly in the real world. A good growth rate for a people-heavy business like this is 20%. Maybe 50%, but usually that's when you're really tiny. If you're big, if you're getting big, right, 20% is kind of like a, a fantastic growth rate for an accounting firm. VCs, though, they're asking for you know double, triple, quadruple. They want to see you grow 10x every year if you, if you can, right? So that clearly wasn't happening, and I think these VCs were seeing that play out. So then they say, well, what can we do to actually make this company grow like a tech company? Well, let's get rid of the people and let's pivot to a marketplace and let's just make tech. That's how you scale. <laughs> if you're going to raise money like a tech company, you got to be a tech company. And that's what they were pivoting to in February. So in February, they laid off 40 of their customer service people. Now, I don't know if those customer service people were bookkeepers or accountants or what, but they let them go. 
and they started pivoting to this marketplace and then COVID hit in March. So, but I think there's been signs along the way. I mean, we we've questioned the numbers way early. Like we we we've been questioning this. I went back. We had, we did episode seventy. We're now on episode. This will be episode one hundred and eighty one. So episode seventy, when they they raised money, we started talking like this is a lot of money. They don't have like the, the people in the space. Like it, it all it, it's been questioned the whole time, right? Yeah. And some part of me have seen there's been breadcrumbs along the way that are questionable behaviors. It's interesting though because I've heard interviews with Kurt, other podcasts, etc. Like he's actually he's a CPA first. I actually think he's probably even a good CEO from a people perspective. Even their um, his letter or his blog post talks about how they really took care of their employees when this is all said and done. Um, I think there's some money left that they might be giving back to investors. Like I think he's totally a legit, straight up dude. Like there's no doubt there. But in one of the podcasts I was listening to, he was talking about how like they're growing and they had like three offices and they drive people around and they have this bus that constantly they put the engineers in one office and people in this other office and they're driving in circles, driving people. They, it just feels like there's a lot of waste, mm-hmm. right? And they're in Austin, which is right behind San Francisco. It's completely overpriced real estate right now, right? They couldn't get off space to have everybody in the same building. And he was talking about how it created like culture clashes. You know, they have this like TV show they did. And so there's just been a lot of like chaos, right? Yeah. Some felt like there's a lot of chaos. Austin was hard to manage, right? But then I look at, I don't know if you remember when we were at QuickBooks Connect uh, this past year in November. So this is going back to November. So QuickBooks Connect, most of our listeners have been there. They know of QuickBooks Connect. Like it is possibly the biggest, most important event in our space. And the booths are very expensive. You don't, if you rent a booth, it's because you want to be right. there. Scale Factor rented a booth and made a conscious decision to not go there the first day. They never showed up. There was just boxes sitting in their booth. They didn't have one employee they could have sent to just represent Scale Factor properly in front of 2,500 accountants and bookkeepers. They blew off the accountants and bookkeepers day to just to focus on the small business day. So it's just like you see these little questionable decisions mm-hmm. and it kind of makes sense. Like, like that is an insane decision. Why even go to Cooper's Connect? You look like a, they look dumb. And I'll put the picture up. That'll probably be our cover art. Like it's their booth with cardboard boxes right, it in is. it. And it's, it's a question. It decision. just had the, the boxes delivered by the, the union, the union people uh, just dumped it there. It looked, it looked like garbage. It was awful. Yeah. With their logo right there. But they made a conscious decision not to do that, which is crazy, which tells me they didn't understand this industry at all. Yeah. So one of the questions I had immediately was where did all the money go? What happened to the 100 million? Because there's no way with 100 employees that they burned through 100 million dollars in a year. Not possible. That's a lot of money. If they got a thousand clients, that's a hundred thousand per client. And I, so I texted uh, somebody who's a leader at a top 100 accounting firm, and I said, "Hey, can I buy your firm for a hundred million dollars?" He's like, "I got a text back, sure." <laughs> like, so, so you could, if you if you wanted clients, you could just bought a big old accounting right. firm. They could have just bought a firm. So. It, Clearly, they didn't spend the money. They didn't spend all that money. And in one of these articles, Kurt says they're returning some of the money, although he did not disclose how much money is being returned to the VCs. And I suspect a lot of money is going back. And I wonder if the VCs forced it and they saw that this what this restructuring, this 2.020 wasn't going to happen. And they needed the cash because of COVID. And they said, we're cutting our losses. We're just going to take the money back. You guys shut down, lay off your employees. And if that is true, that is pretty shitty. Don't you think? All these people, hundred of people that joined Scale Factor, which had its problems, but like any firm has its challenges. 
but they could have survived. They only lost half of their revenue. They could have cut half of their workforce and kept going, or they could have tightened their belts and taken pay cuts and kept going like everybody else. But instead, you have VCs that say, rich VCs, by the way, who say, I want my money back, lay everyone off. And yeah, they got 12 weeks of severance, but that's not much comfort in three months when you can't get a job because this recession is going to take years for us to get out of. Well, well, that's confusing then, right? So, do VCs believe that this is possible to automate all the bookkeeping work or don't they? Because you, you're speculating that they, 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 they got scared and backed out of this. But just a week ago, last week, we talked about how VCs put $25 million or what? $25 million, yeah. No, it's $25 million into yeah. bookkeeping, yeah. so, which is very kind of in a way a little similar, not similar, but you know, they're trying to automate the bookkeeping process. I think the VCs bought into the vision of automating bookkeeping and accounting so that you didn't need the people. I think that's what they were sold. And I think what they learned is that it is way, way harder to do that than anyone imagined. I mean, uh, an accountant or bookkeeper would tell you, uh, there's a lot of stuff that I do that's really hard to automate because like just coding transactions is only a tiny part of the value that I create for my clients. But you know, these are VCs. How much due diligence did they do? Probably not enough. I have been speaking off the record with a fractional CFO in this industry who has raised like half a billion dollars for his clients. And I can't use his name because he has a lot of relationships. Here's what he said though, anonymously. The place where the VCs may look bad is the quality of their due diligence. It's totally normal for a VC to take a bet and lose. It's not good to take a bet and have your thesis fall apart so quickly. I think the COVID thing is just cover for everyone to try to save face from what was a really, really poor business model and an obviously bad investment decision. And you know who's going to pay for that? It's the people who took a risk on scale factor, the employees. And Kurt. Like, I actually think Kurt's legit. And what happened is I imagine that when he took all that money, he gave up control. And so when the VCs wanted their money back, there really wasn't much he could do. Well, I think I've heard that uh, the Whole Foods founder, I heard him on a podcast talk about that. He's like, here's the deal with VCs. They're going to, it's like you're driving, you pick up a hitchhiker and he's like, I got a credit card. I'm going to buy gas everywhere we go. And you're like, sweet. And the second you take the wrong turn or you switch lanes and he doesn't like it, he pulls out a gun and holds it to your head. And you have to go from that point forward, you have to do whatever he says. And that's why he described the VC market a little bit. That's the the Whole Foods founder. Yeah, it makes sense. So uh, there's one thing I want to tie this off with is this discussion about what you can automate in bookkeeping and is it possible to automate it? And I will tell you having thought about this. I had this idea, okay? My company was a potential scale factor. When we created this, our company, CloudSourced Accounting, back in 2014, 2015, same around the same time as scale factor, I had this idea that it would be this big, fast-growing online bookkeeping company that would do software and we would do the same thing. It was the same idea, right? Now you're a podcaster. I'm now I'm a podcaster. Clearly (laughs) I made it. But what I realized is, and the reason I didn't pursue that is because I realized after three years that it is impossible to automate what bookkeepers do because so much of what we do is talking to people. Business owners don't want a dashboard, okay? That was Scale Factor's product. They don't want a dashboard. They don't want to look at a dashboard. Dashboards are tools. They have their place, but that is not the product. That is not what the business owner wants. What they want is an accountant who knows business, who they can call, who will help them with their problems. And those problems 
you, you can't plan for that. Like the PPP thing, you cannot create software that's going to do that for people like in advance. That just happens. You know, they, they need help with getting business licenses. They need help with local tax issues. They need help with this weird payroll thing that nobody's ever seen. It, it's, it's not... Or the daily changing PPP. Yeah, right? exactly. They need help with that. Yeah. So... You can't automate a thing that changes every single hour. Yeah. So like- I think, you know, the, the folks who invest in automating a service business right, are taking a really big leap of faith because nobody's ever done this before in our industry. You know, you can automate the bank coding and stuff, but that's just a small part of what we do. And in the end, the problem with scaling up a business like this is it it is so people intensive and it's really hard to hire and retain good people. That's the big barrier to growth. Churn in your own employees, and the cost to acquire these customers and get them onboarded, it takes months and months and months. It's not a software business. It's a services business. So one thing uh, I mean, it kind of ties into this, we talk about like, where'd the money go? So one thing Scale Factor did is they spent a lot on advertising. A lot. They're very aggressive the way they advertised. I mean, and considering how many clients they got, like you could argue their advertising failed, but they were very, very aggressive. They attacked Facebook. They attacked Google AdWords. They attacked other accounting firms. Mm-hmm. And so it's really interesting, like he who got the last laugh, right? Actually, I, I was searching for Scale Factor Forbes and I noticed Cruise Consulting has some AdWords focused on Scale Factor in the Forbes article. Oh. And they're, so they're running ads against that. And then Acuity, um, so Acuity, we did a, we actually did an episode at their site yep. um, about good, the fall, right? Good friends of so the show. So Acuity, Acuity put out a beautiful blog post that actually looks like a news article. And it's like Scale Factor News. And they basically made a statement about Scale Factor. And they're targeting the Scale Factor customers to come to them, yep. right? But but they did take time to put in a little dig at the end um, because scale, Acuity was one of the people they were purposely targeting. So they were targeting cloud accounting, forward-thinking accounting firms and trying to steal their clients. Yep. Essentially, Scale Factor was. And it was a little dirty, I think. It was not... It, I mean, there's so much work for abundance for everybody in this industry. We're all competing with spreadsheets and post-it notes still, right? Yeah. And QuickBooks desktop, right? There's so much room for everybody to win. And they were going after people who are doing well, right? And so at the very end of this article, so there's a blog post from Acuity. And at the very end, it just says a little bit about Acuity. We are 100% bootstrapped by our two founders who are both still active in the business. We've been around since 2004. We're about the same size as scale factor. Throughout our history, our specialty and largest customer segment has been SaaS companies. So you have, here's another company, you know, accounting firm took no money and they're the same size. <laughs> yeah, that really doesn't make uh, Scale Factor look great, does it? Which makes me think that actually, unless they somehow burned all that money on Facebook ads, a lot went back to the VCs. Like I can't see them burning more than a million a month. So it's been 12 months, right? That's 12 million out of the hundred. You know, it, obviously they spent more before that, but you know, I bet like 80% of the money went back to the VCs. All right, so that's enough on that. I've got follow up on Luckin and Wirecard. Do you want to hit those stories? The arrest, yeah, I saw the arrest, and I totally forgot about that. I'm glad you uh, put it in your your uh, pile here. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by ADP Accountant Connect. How can you stay on top of your game and still have time to think more strategically? Or how do you keep up with all the COVID-19 related stimuli programs to make sure your clients have the documentation to get their piece of the pie? By using ADP's award-winning multi-client payroll management and analytics platform called Accountants Connect. 
Be your client's go-to guru by leveraging Accountant Connect's tools and resources to strengthen your strategic advisory role while boosting the efficiency of your traditional tax and accounting services. With ADP Accountant Connect, you can process payroll and easily integrate payroll data to the popular accounting systems like QuickBooks, Zero, and Sage, and handle their clients' needs anywhere at any time. And because ADP Accountants Connect was designed by accountants for accountants, it includes so much more. You can take a CPE course on trending topics, provide your clients with benchmarking data, access a tax resource library, calculators, ebooks, even template letters for communicating with your clients. And it's free. Head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash ADP. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash ADP. ADP has your back with Accountant Connect. Wirecard's former chief executive officer, Braun, what was his first name? Was it Marcus? Marcus Braun, Steve Jobs wannabe, was arrested by Munich prosecutors uh, for his role or alleged role in faking $2 billion of cash that was supposedly held at Singapore's OCBC bank. But that is not the big story this week. The big story this week is about the auditors who, David, you questioned why, how auditors could possibly have missed this for a decade because Ernst & Young has been auditing Wirecard for 10 years. And then apparently uh, KPMG came in and like in eight weeks figured it out. Yeah. So, right. so apparently the Financial Times has been doing a long-standing investigation of Wirecard and people have been saying, this is not possible. They're faking their books, right? And Ernst & Young had been signing off flawless audit unqualified opinion year after year after year, KPMG came in and figured out that between 2016 and 2018, for three years, EY did not check directly with Singapore's OCBC Bank to confirm the two over $2 billion of cash held on behalf of Wirecard that we now have learned is uh, most likely fake. It doesn't exist because the bank said they've never <laughs> even had an account uh, for Wirecard. So Wirecard filed for bankruptcy. That's another big thing that happened this week. All of their loan covenants are out of compliance now. That they 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 have no way to survive this apparently in terms of liquidity. SoftBank is going to sue Ernst and Young. I guess they were an investor in Wirecard. Uh, there's multiple lawsuits. There's a lawsuit from a German business group of investors. Um, some of the quotes in this story in the Financial Times are really great. Here they are. A big question for me is what on earth did EY do when they signed off the accounts, said a senior banker at a lender with credit exposure to Wirecard. A senior auditor at another firm said that obtaining independent confirmation of bank balances was, quote, equivalent to day one training at audit school, end quote. The head of audit at a rival accounting firm to EY said, quote, it is beyond the realms of reality that EY wouldn't have had the bank balance confirmations unless they did a very poor audit. Cash is easy to audit. If investors can't trust the cash number, what can they trust? End quote. And here's what EY is saying about this. They're saying, quote, there were clear indications that this was an elaborate and sophisticated fraud involving multiple parties around the world in different institutions with a deliberate aim of deception. End quote. The company argued that, quote, even the most robust audit procedures may not uncover this kind of fraud. Unquote. Of course, the robust audit procedures that we're talking about are <laughs> simply calling the bank to ask, do you have an account for Wirecard? <laughs> now, here's the crazy thing. Five different EY partners signed off on Wirecard's audit over the past five years. And one of them is now 
the chief accounting officer at none other than Deutsche Bank, which, you know, giant international financial institution, Deutsche Bank, their chief accounting officer signed off on these wire card audits. It's just a total freaking disaster. And we've talked about this before, how people that are in the audit space, then they move, they kind of flip-flop positions, right? But they're really just an insider, right? The the, the PCOB in the, in, the, in the US, right? People there don't want to like bag on any of the audits or really audit anything because they go back into the, the practice yeah. and go back to the big four firms and switch back up there. And it's it, it's beyond belief. Yeah. Uh, and real quick, I just want to hit on luck and coffee. So luck and coffee, the other fraud that we talked about. Before before you jump into that, like, did they say like why they arrested the guy? Like, are they saying like, oh, he purposely did some sort of this fraud or they just kind of arrested him to arrest him? That's what was not clear to me. Well, it's hard to imagine that he didn't have something to do with this, given that he's the CEO and, you know, they faked $2 billion of cash. So we don't have like the Luke and coffee that you talked about last week. We have some details on how they did it or what they did, right? But we don't have any other than Wirecard. The, the money oh. doesn't exist. Well, so no, we Wirecard, details. Wirecard was faking bank statements. So what happened was that EY was simply relying on bank statements and screenshots that Wirecard sent to them. Rather than doing their own oh, confirmations so, and balances, so so when they had the, the so they had the balance sheet and they're like, hey, there's a billion dollars in this bank account. You have a bank statement that proves this. Somebody hacked up a fake bank statement and said, "Yep, yeah. here you go." Hard to do. Oh, like so I did not know that. Okay, okay, now I know how they did it. All right, I, I can make you a fake fake bank statement in like two minutes with Snagit, David. It's like the easiest okay. thing to do in the world. And then you just print it out and then you copy it. Like it's just. Any auditor who relies on that. Well, and that's the thing is, it was probably some like first year auditor, right? <laughs> that was doing this confirmation, right? Because this is the job you give to the lowest person on the totem pole. I would love to see these too. I, 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 you're right. It's probably really poor, like paint shop 101. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, these people are too young and inexperienced to know any better. And then the audit partners are too cozy with the execs at Wirecard to ever even bother to look because why would they suspect it? And it is kind of an outrageous fraud. Who would ever think that somebody would fabricate $2 billion of cash on the balance sheet? Yes, fake receivables, you know, uh, like what Luckin did where they had um, fake gift cards, essentially. That is a- So is this going to take down EY? Like like how Enron took down- I I don't know. I mean, Anderson? I I don't know. Like uh, it's- it's the you know German office, obviously. Uh, so, like all the big four, they have you know national offices. I, I think they're like insulated from each other legally, I, I, and they're getting sued. But I don't know what this could be a lot of money, right? I mean, it's a we're talking billions of dollars of shareholder value wiped out here. And and yeah. EY was also the auditor of Luckin Coffee in China. They have not had a good few weeks. <laughs> so right. so what happened in luckin with luckin is uh the chairman charles lu has been removed by the board and charles lu was the founder of cars inc in china and is worth like 2 billion dollars or something like that you know that's that's some of the news uh, their their stock is down 54% on friday and their shares have been suspended from trading on nasdaq so no longer going to be tradable in the united states which is bad news for the investors there so that's my follow-up in fraud world. Oh, and in audit-related news, you uh, found this. General Electric is firing KPMG, and Deloitte is going to be their new auditor starting in 2021 fiscal year. And that was after 100 years or some ridiculous Yes. Number? And 
I forget exactly the details, but I think like KPMG got in trouble because GE had a bunch of accounting irregularities that KPMG never caught and, you know, caused a bunch of um, shareholder losses in the markets. And so the shareholders voted fairly overwhelmingly. I don't remember the exact percent, but it was a lot uh, to ask the board to replace KPMG. So now they've hired Deloitte and uh, going concern was curious. So they went back to the 2019 filings and found out just what that engagement is worth. And it looks like in 2019, GE paid uh, KPMG 79, six, uh, yeah, $79 million in fees. And in previous years, it's been more. It's been over $100 million in uh, 2018 and 2017. So that's a big engagement wow. in tax too. So what you got this week, David? So uh, I think we should talk about Intuit, so, <laughs> which in theory on Monday or whenever this happened, Monday or Tuesday, this would have been the big, biggest news of the week. But it's unbelievable the week we've had. It's been pushed down below the fold, but it's still a big story. It is a big story. So Intuit had an announcement and they put it out in a blog post from Sasan Gadarzi about how they had a reorg. And unfortunately, as part of this reorg, they had to uh, eliminate 715 positions. And then I, I know people that got let go. It sucks. Like, uh, these are friends, right? Still, even though I'm not, I haven't been into it in two years, these are friends that have got, they lost their jobs. And then the blog post goes on to talk about how they're, uh, they have 700 more roles that they currently are trying to hire for, right? So they're 715 are gone and 700 roles. And people are very confused by this. And then people are on uh, Facebook posts, people put on comment threads on posts I put about it, you know, and people are very confused. So I can kind of give some insights to that a little bit for anybody listeners that don't understand this. So let's take Intuit out of the picture. And let's just look at like third-party app developers or app developers, right? Moving from desktop to SaaS is very hard. If you have a company that has a desktop app and all of your cash and your revenue is tied to that app and your engineering skill set is in that app and your sales and your support, they're all in that desktop app. It's very hard to transition to cloud. And there's only a handful of companies that have done it. I can uh, look at LivePlan. I can look at... Um, BQE Core, and I think we've even talked to um, Shafat about this, about how they had to do it. SalesPad has done it. There's not a lot of companies have done it, but we start talking to them. The way they've had to do it is you either have to create a separate division that's completely separate from your company, or you have to burn the boats. You just have to burn them. And that's what Shafat did. As soon as they built their SaaS product, he stopped selling their desktop product. LivePlan, I've talked to them. Basically, over a four or five-year period, they had to replace all their engineers and product managers with cloud-based ones. And Intuit has done the same thing. Five, six, seven, eight years ago, about four or five years in a row, Intuit would lay off 400, rehire 400. Lay off 800, rehire 700. This has happened before. And it's a transition of talent is what's happening mm. to match the new talent. Set. Intuit would have never made the transition from desktop to cloud if they did not replace thousands of jobs over a three-year period. And there's a lot of desktop apps that have died now because they never made the transition to cloud. So that's what's happening here is Intuit has its next big bets. And they talked about how they're, uh, they need to invest more in technology. Customer success is being rethought about. Sales is being rethought about how they're doing in this, how, the, how they're moving forward the next five, six, seven years into the future. And in order to do that, they have different job needs. And so this is a this is a shift of strategy for Intuit, and Intuit's done it before. 
This is not like a surprise. And Intuit does it around this time of the year, right before August. It hasn't been this big in a while. And I think that's what's really shocking for most people. And I don't feel like Intuit's ever put the numbers out the way they have in, in a blog post like this. And that's so it's causing uh, confusion because it's it's it feels illogical, right? Like 700 people are being laid off, but you're hiring 700 people. Right. And, and I see the term AI is actually in this article quite a lot. I think there's four mentions of it in this Accounting Today story. Does that mean they're going to have to hire a lot of people well, for AI? Well, <laughs> I'm curious, are they leaning into it or are they pulling back from it? I think they're leaning into it harder. Gotcha. That's my understanding. Well, Because um, they want to build that quote-unquote expert AI-driven platform. So they're still going to have people involved, but they might have people involved in the QB live sense of, or the TurboTax live sense of the world. Well, you know who could have used some AI or just some regular old intelligence? The IRS. <laughs> okay, what did they do now? So I'm not talking PPP. I'm not talking Main Street Lending Program. I'm talking just those vanilla stimulus payments that went to individuals for $1,200. Uh, In theory, the part of the stimulus package that accounts and bookkeepers probably didn't have to worry too much about. Yeah, but of course, you know, if you do t- individual tax, I'm sure your clients were pestering you, wondering, hey, where's my stimulus payment? Where's my stimulus payment? And then you just have to tell them, uh, I don't know because I'm not the IRS. Well, the federal government apparently sent coronavirus stimulus payments to almost 1.1 million dead people at a total value of nearly $1.4 billion, according to Congress's independent watchdog on Thursday. The GAO said that the payments to dead people came as the Treasury and the IRS rushed to disperse some 160.4 million payments, totaling $269 billion after the CARES Act was passed in March. So let's put this in perspective. $1.4 billion out of $269 billion. I guess that's not too bad an error rate, but a million dead people is a lot. But at the same time, like it's, 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 it's only a billion out of $2.6 trillion. Right. For, for all, if you take all the stimulus stuff together, it, it's, right. it's, it, yeah. So, you know, I mean, these numbers are big, but nominal. they're small um, in the, in the totality of it all. But the interesting thing to me is how this happened. Apparently the problem is that while the IRS has access to the social security administration's full set of death records, the treasury department and its bureau of the fiscal service, which actually issue the payments don't have access. So they don't have any way, the Treasury Department doesn't have any way to verify or to cross-check to make sure these people aren't dead. So the GAO says that Congress should authorize Treasury to have access to Social Security records, death records anyway, and then require that they use it. (laughs) The IRS, you may recall, said that people should return the stimulus payments issued to dead people. And there was a question as to would that happen and would there be penalties for people if they didn't? And apparently, other than making that announcement, the IRS has no plans to actually get the money back. Just a uh, $1.4 billion leak in the CARES Act. That's all. (laughs) It's funny because this would have been a huge number right in the past. And now we just are like, oh, well. So because there's this delay, right? And the system's not talking to each other. So when you... You have a spouse that dies. Can you probably file your taxes for like three more years and just deduct them? Well, just claim them. I think that's a pretty common. Yeah, I think that's a common fraud, right? Um, people claiming dependents they don't have that don't exist. How would anyone know? They don't confirm this stuff. Where are they gonna? Where are they gonna figure it out? Right? 
And if you spend the money, it makes it seem like, oh, they, they cashed the check. They must still be alive. <laughs> I think actually that's one of the big social security frauds at the individual level is your spouse dies, you don't tell social security and they keep sending the check. How many billions of – oh, that, like, that, that's yeah, – right? if you know this data, somebody please send it to us. I imagine it's way more than the amount of this. Yeah. Pro- it's pro- month. Yeah, it's probably a lot all, every month. Um, I've got PPP news. Yeah, jump in. Okay. So, we had a, some new guidance. Instead of coming out on Friday, it came out on Monday. Now, just to keep us on our toes, David. So, Monday night, the Treasury said that PPP recipients may now apply for loan forgiveness early, but that doing so could cost them money. So, I guess the issue is that you can apply for loan forgiveness early, but if you do that, you forfeit the safe harbor provision that allows you to restore salaries or wages by December 31st and avoid reductions in the loan forgiveness they receive. For example, if a borrower has a 24-week period that ends in November but wants to apply in September, any wage reduction in excess of 25% as of September would be calculated for the entire 24-week period, even if the borrower restores salaries by December 31st. So the the last bit on the PPP is the SBA exempting lawmakers and federal officials from ethics rules around the PPP program. Back on April 13th, the Trump administration disclosed that the SBA had blanket suspended the rule that lawmakers and federal employees who apply for small business funds have to get approval of a standards of conduct committee. This is a normal process. If if you are in Congress or you work for the SBA, you may have a conflict of interest. So you have to go before a special committee that says it's okay for you to get this SBA loan because it's taxpayer money, right? And you work here. And they blanket suspended this rule apparently for everybody. So even if you worked at the SBA, you could hook up your friends and family with PPP loans all day long. Uh, and that wasn't apparently against the rules. Well, that's like when the Old Navy and Gap have that Gap have that friends and family <laughs> discount weekend. It's kind of the same thing, but for the SBA. Yeah, I get it. I get it. And, and so, do we want to talk? Okay. Well, and so what's kind of interesting about this is that you know the SBA has said that they're going to make all the loans over one hundred and fifty thousand dollars public, but everything under that is completely secret. It's not going to be released at an individual level. So, I wonder how many of those loans were friends and family or even individuals who worked at the SBA. I mean, without transparency in that regard, how are we going to know? It's uh, potentially a, a bonanza for insiders. A good gig if you got it, right? Uh, I don't know if, know if we need to talk about this, but there's uh, the tax deadline, July 15th. So oh, Mnuchin, crap. Yeah, David, thank you for reminding me. <laughs> I haven't done my taxes yet. Okay. So they're hinting at moving it again, but then there's arguments online about this. The AICPA is taking a stance like, don't move it. Now, my prediction is we'll have to talk about this next week because the, if they do move it, they're going to wait till July 3rd. So people are going to their July 4th holiday weekend. Accountants and bookkeepers probably have canceled their plans for July 4th weekend so they can work because of the tax deadline. And then they're going to announce that it's been moved that weekend and ruined everybody's a holiday weekend. So that's, we'll be talking about this next week. So we don't have to discuss it this week. Even though there was that article with the headline saying that Mnuchin is thinking about moving the deadline. I think he's leaning toward not. It was like, we might move it, but more likely than not, we won't. So slim chances probably, but Hey, you never know, right? At the last minute they might do it. Uh, But I think an argument against that on the 
government side is that the longer they delay it, the later the payments come in and the treasury really needs that money. You know, who knows? They're just, I, I think, <laughs> I think the tax people are going to kill people <laughs> if this gets extended <laughs> again, right? Like it's, it's going to be bad uh, because it's the tax season that never ends if that's the case, right? Because then you come into September and you're pushing up the deadline for individuals up against the corporate deadline and all that stuff. And then it's just going to, it's going to, it's going to be a whole year of tax season. It's like, well, maybe it's like a whole, it's like COVID. It never ends. Yeah. Like, I, it seems appropriate. <laughs> I think though, I, I just feel so sorry for like the, uh, the people who work in tax, who are at home with kids who are not in school, trying to work, trying to get stuff from clients, and the tax season just doesn't end. It's like a, it's like an unending nightmare. is is just the way I imagine it to be. Every day, every day. Same as it was every day before. <laughs> it's, the only difference is there's a, there's new PPP news. That's about the only difference. It's the worst Groundhog Day ever. Yeah. Uh, should we jump into app news quickly? Yes, let's do that. MasterCard is to purchase open banking company. I can never say this right. So take the word financial and take the word city and mush them together. It's F-I-N-I-C-I-T-Y. Finicity? Finicity. Oh, God. That's terrible. I can't. It's, it, it's very hard to say. And I've known about them for years and I've never said it right in a bunch of years. They're, they're, MasterCard's purchasing them for $825 million, which is deal of the century if you compare to what Visa paid for Plaid, what, $5.2 billion or something? Oh, wow. It was that much. Wow. Yeah, so this is nothing. But what's bad about this, so so Plaid, Plaid, all those bank feeds you get in all these apps and many times is uh, an app is paying Plaid to go get the data from the banks, right? Now Visa owns that. Intuit, I think, builds their own bank feeds. So they're not using a third-party service. So Intuit has their own bank feeds and they actually had a bank feed API at one time and they shut it down. Um, they decided to use it as their secret sauce inside of QuickBooks, et cetera. Now, Finicity, they just got bought by MasterCard. So now Visa and MasterCard essentially own the bank feed APIs. I don't know if that, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? I think it's kind of bad in a way because they, they also have APIs for their own apps. So that's why you're seeing all these startups that have like, um, like instant credit cards and, you know, the, these, these startup banks that are showing up, even consumer ones, right? They're using the Visa or MasterCard APIs. They're accessing people's bank accounts via either Stripe or Finicity, Finicity, <laughs> right? They're either accessing it through those services. And now they control the whole thing. I think long-term, like there's consumer freedom and consumer choice is not in competition is not there. Well, and it, it, it makes sense why they would do this, right? Because- Oh, I get why. Yes, absolutely. Credit card fees ultimately are going away. There, there are going to be disruptors that figure out how to transfer money without the need for all of this, or they're going to get put under pressure to reduce those. So where where can they stay involved in all of this transacting and still be able to extract value? It's the data. And that's what these feeds provide is just access to enormous amounts of transaction data that they can then sell, they can use themselves, they can mine uh, Which is more valuable than the the swipe fee, et cetera. Potentially, right? In the end, right? Like, like, like that's why Facebook's worth so much, right? Because it knows so much about us. And and we've and we've talked about how before, like Starbucks and you know even Square with their Square app, they're taking Visa and Mastercard out of the game 
because they're just keeping the money within their own systems. Right. And so, yeah, Visa and MasterCard have to diversify. And, and Well, and lo- long-term, you know, Bitcoin, blockchain is going to get rid of that long-term. It will happen eventually. And maybe this explains why Amex bank feeds are so horrible. They're always going down and breaking. That <laughs> like, <laughs> they don't have any of these? Uh, well, well, no, because the... Amex's competitors are Visa and MasterCard. Right. So yeah, make oh, yeah, those, yeah. those big feeds a little less reliable, right? Yeah. Like, like, yeah it's it, like it's like Trump with the uh, the testing, right? Yeah, let's go a little slow on that. Yeah, just 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 you know, <laughs> screw down up that, that bank feed every fifth day or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, interesting. So just to tie into last week, I really want to have more app news. But remember last week we talked about Square, and that one article kind of hinted at possibly a Square into it deal. Into mm-hmm. it buying Square or a Square merger. We talked about this loosely. It suggested last it would make sense. And I've thought about this a lot over the last week. And then um, out of the blue, Hector Garcia, he sent me a Facebook message and he was just talking about Shopify. And he's like, yeah, Shopify buying FreshBooks could be really interesting. And they're both in Toronto. Right, they're both Canadian, and you know, and, and that's why all these companies are making moves. The banks are getting general ledgers, right? General ledgers are becoming ba- the accounting apps are becoming banks. But Shopify's really big competition for Square right now, and Shopify's competition for Amazon right now. Mm-hmm. And if Shopify bought an accounting system like FreshBooks, that is a huge move. Yeah, and they can afford to buy them as well. Yeah, and I th- actually think if that was to happen. For sure, Intuit and Square would do a deal. And there could be signs of that. And I noticed this week that there was a blog post out from TurboTax. TurboTax is doing events with Square. They're doing a week long of events. Um, and, and these events are actually listed on the Square's website. If you go to squareup.com slash events. So, you know, they're maybe they're dating. I don't know. But it's just, it's, it's really interesting to think about that Shopify FreshBooks thing. When Hector Garcia brought that up, I was just like, wow, that makes a lot of sense. They're, they're right in each other's backyard. Yeah, yeah. Shopify has the money to do it. FreshBooks is finally truly a GL. The only reason why that wouldn't happen, in my opinion, is that FreshBooks primarily targets not e-commerce. Like their customers are professional services providers, like freelancers, designers, all that sort of thing. People who track time, whereas Shopify is obviously e-commerce. That would be the only reason why not. But maybe it doesn't matter if, if you have, need the GL engine, yeah. that, that would be worth it. Or, or maybe Shopify wants to go both directions, right? It, it would actually be interesting if like, you could use Shopify to set up your website for your professional services firm and then all the e-commerce stuff, like productizing your services was already there. Actually, that would be brilliant. You could, yeah, you could, you could, you could hire your designer right through there. The whole end to end. That'd yeah. be really interesting because the, the trend is, you know, let's productize our services. Let's not charge for our time. Let's create a product and sell it like an e-commerce company. So it's just a little speculation, but I think as we, I think as we watch consolidation happen in this industry, and you're probably going to see more of it. If companies are going under, there's going to be consolidation because companies are going to eat up other companies. We're probably going to see a lot of that in the next 18 to 24 months. But I, I truly believe like Shopify buying FreshBooks would be massive news and it would cause huge ripple effects, way bigger than H&R Block getting Wave. Well, David, that's all the time we have today. If people want to connect with you online, where should they do that? Um, probably the easiest on Twitter. I'm at David Leary, but I'm also on LinkedIn at David Leary and Facebook at David Leary. And apparently I'm on TikTok at the David Leary, but I don't put anything on TikTok today. I am at Blake T. Oliver. Connect with me on Twitter. And until next time, David, have a good one. Stay safe.
Yeah, hopefully it's an easier week next week. A little less news. Every time you say that, it ends up being more, so don't jinx us. All right. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Bye. Time for the classifieds. Still sending spreadsheets of unclassified expenses to clients? With Client Hub, automate this process and get client answers instantly. Client Hub is a client communication platform that helps you consolidate client communication, securely share files, and instantly get answers and much, much more. Get started today with a free trial at clienthub.app and enter promo code CAP25 for 25% off your first three months. Client Hub, frictionless client communication.